Rosa, I call out. Rosa! Prior to this moment, I know my sleep faced many rude awakenings. In the new American army, I probably got eight hours of sleep in a week. But with Rosa, I always sleep until I'm ready to get out of bed. Having a ceiling fan, broken planks, bricks, and roof tiles wang me down. I need some help getting out. There's a chance that Rosa wasn't in bed with me. Maybe she went to the bathroom or the kitchen. It's dark and it feels late, but that might be the shit blocking the light from my eyes. Rosa! My left arm scrapes past something hard until I touch her with my fingertip. This is painful. I'm very new to this pain. Yes, I feel a punch to the head or when Rosa steps on my foot during an argument, but we don't bleed or bruise. Each lone grasp at a breath and exhaling claws at my chest. Muffled voices call out. Rumbles come near. Then a pair of eyes appear after someone pulls the shit from my face. Rosa's neighbor, Cyril, motions for his wife, Gafria. Nero, he says. Get her, I say. Rosa. He looks at me a little too long and complies as they dig us out. Before my legs are free, I sit up and my spine cracks. Feels like I was held down underwater. There's an ambulance coming, Gifria says. I'll be okay, I say. What about Rosa? When I look, Cyril slaps Rosa's face. If he wasn't her neighbor for so long, I'd choke him out for that. There's a broken wooden beam sticking out of her chest, and our mattress resembles the floor of a slaughterhouse. I never thought, Cyril says. There's a brick wall sitting undisturbed that separates Cyril's townhouse from us. The other neighboring townhouse doesn't have any signs of damage either. Did a two-ton Acme anvil fall from the sky and land on our home? They're almost here, Gifira says. I can walk, I say. Forget it. You could be bleeding internally, Cyril says. No doctor can fix me. If I die, I die. What about Rosa? Do I look like a mortician? Life is the worst sexually transmitted disease, and it's always a terminal diagnosis. That might be a quote from some philosopher from old America. I think his name was Lang. Rosa and I were doomed to living too long, all because we came into the world at the wrong moment. Having known her for 13 years, I suppose God gave her a release, and I am still limping in the moonlight like a smudged poem written by a scar-faced drunk on a cocktail napkin. Holy fuck does it hurt to walk. Collapsing on the cobblestone street, the ambulance stops before a tire bumps over my skull. The people in white look so blurry, I can't tell them apart, and their voices echo through a bottomless well. The nurses can't penetrate my skin to insert an IV or draw blood. Lights go in and out as I can't help giving into the darkness. 
when I'm finally able to keep my eyes open, my bare feet look alien to me. Several of my toenails are broken or missing. Purple welts look like camouflage, and a trail of red goes up my ankle under the gown and up to my chest. When I move my jaw, each ear pops, and a warm sensation runs out of my nose. More blood. If I'm still alive now, then I'll survive, but need time. The only person who could kill us is all the way in Emerald Isle. Maybe we pissed him off enough to come for us. I haven't heard from Birch since 2137, though. Then again, he wouldn't need to be in Atlanta to hurt us. After a nurse passes by and sees I'm awake, I hear her call out to someone else. A man with a shaved head, goatee, and tweed blazer knocks on the door. Doesn't look like a doctor. Mr. Sullivan, he asks. Mm-hmm, I say. Detective Torrent, he nods. I seem to recall your name being set a lot down at APD, and then suddenly nobody ever said Nero again. I was just a patrolman back then. They promote quickly, I say. Must be a high turnover. Well, when some of your best people end up dead one night under mysterious circumstances, Torrent shrugs, I don't know you, so you're not here for a cordial visit. Right. I'm actually here because there's a dead woman who I know you didn't kill, but it seems people who spend any amount of time with you end up dead. I've never killed anybody, I say. I'm sure you know that. That's what I've heard. Nero doesn't kill. It's sort of a silly rule for a guy who acts as an unlawful vigilante. I got more done than you all did for a while. Yep, Torrent comes closer. I need to know if you have any idea why this happened. We can't find any evidence of what happened at all other than the house that's now a pile of bricks and wood. APD has fucked me over enough, I say, so fuck you. Hmm. Torrent turns around. We'll probably talk again soon. Or I will. Another one of you comes trying to talk to me, I say, and I might just show you what method is more effective than killing a man. The next day, when the doctor sees I'm able to walk without passing out from the pain, a nurse hands me a bottle of concentrated CBD and wheels me outside. My clothes are torn pajama bottoms, an oversized shirt covered in blood, and no socks or shoes. They really take care of their people here. A teleportation terminal sits at the end of the street, so I direct myself to the Bank of New America. Looking the way I do... Everybody will probably stop to look at me. How can I buy new clothes with everything I owned was destroyed? I don't even have my debit card. Sir, the security guard walks up to me in the lobby. Can I ask you to step over here for a moment? He's about a foot shorter than me, as most people are, and maybe 200 pounds. I could lift him by an ankle and twirl him around my head. Not that I'd want to. I'm here to be issued a temporary card, I say. You can talk to me when I have new clothes. Well, 
We can't have you coming in here. I grab his left ear and kick his gun holster off the faux leather belt. Everyone in here will soon recognize me, so maybe they'll realize what I'm going through. I need a temporary card, I call to a teller. My name is Nero Sullivan. You know who I am. Please, the guard clinches. I will hang you by your cheap trousers if you don't shut the fuck up, I say. A lady with heels clacking against the tile floor comes over with my new card. When the guard falls to the floor, I head outside figuring I'm going to have a cop stop me before I can make it to the Hatcher clothing store down the block. Wearing out the only pants that will fit me, a pair of black slacks meant for funerals, and a white undershirt someone found in the back, I now have to face the reality that I am homeless once again. My last home met a similar fate to Rosa's townhouse back in 2137 thanks to some crooked cops. Had she not died in the incident, I'd assume the cops found me again. Funny. If Birch wanted us dead, surely he'd know I survived. Wouldn't he want the job done right? Teleporting to Emerald Isle, I rent a bike from a stand and pedal towards the beach. Feels like gravel and sand and grind in my joints. I take a breather once I get to the hill that leads to Birch's Road. I never know what to think of the old man. He looks younger than me, but he's older than New America. If he looked his age, maybe I'd see him as a father figure. Instead, we always got on each other's nerves and he bailed me out when I was really in a bind. Rather than ride up the hill, I walk next to the bike and have to breathe through my mouth. As my lungs cramp, I finally see down the long road that leads to Birch's house, the horse stable, and empty plot where I used to live. But nothing's there. I jump on the bike to coast down, and only the stable remains intact. Birch's house looks like a bigger pile of wood than what I left behind. The closer I get, the more I know that he's gone. Not like out of the state gone, either. There's a sensation telling me he's not with us anymore. Probably not dead, though. That'd be his wet dream. Still, I run over to the remnants of his home and pull away the scraps to see if he's buried underneath. Then I see a huge divot in the sand. Perfume and smoke have me looking around for the source. Through a gray cloud on the shoreline, a woman appears. Last time I saw her, she had dark blonde hair and extremely blue eyes, but all of her features softened since then. You're really going to be very lonely if you don't make new friends, Lilith says. I'll get to work on that after you tell me what happened, I say. I suppose even the world's worst detective couldn't piece together a destroyed house and missing person. Just tell me. Lilith looks at me and tries touching my shoulder, but I grab her wrist and pull away. Having lost my girlfriend only yesterday, I'm not about to dive into Satan's butthole. Birch tried to kill himself. Lilith shrugs. This time, he took you two down with him. Where is he then? I ask. If I had the answer, I would have told you, Nero. 
Then why are you talking to me right now? Do you not want my help? No, I say. If Birch is gone and not coming back, I have no use for you. You're the last of the Trinity now, Nero. Without Birch as the figurehead, you're going to see a new generation come together in the next two decades. Satan misleads no matter who dons the title. When Birch took Satan's earth form down in 2127, he effectively ended future generations of the Trinity. Lilith only wants me to be paranoid. Rather than telling her to go to hell, I go back to the bike and get ready to go back over the hill. Let me do you a favor, Lilith says. A second wind flows through me as I feel all my wounds, bruises, lungs, and muscles repair. I wouldn't have thought to ask for her help in that regard. My cordial gratitude, I say, or whatever. Your job is to balance good and evil in the world, Nero. You can't only have good, and as the only remainder of the Trinity, you can't keep pretending to be above killing people. Maybe I'll start with you, I say. It's a lot more brief seeing her leave than when she's theatrically appearing in smoke. She was right that I am the last of us. And I have responsibilities. I'm going to rebuild what I started in Atlanta and perhaps expand my scope beyond my hometown. With my remaining money, I may be able to clear the land I left behind in 2137 and rebuild a home, though not as extravagantly as before. Instead, I'm living in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom home. Since I don't own a car, I didn't see a point in building a garage. The little money I have left goes to food. When that's gone, I'll have to walk down to my long driveway and teleport to the soup kitchen. New America doesn't have property taxes, and they offer basic food service to the homeless and low-income families. I'm hoping to work around that, though. Even if I have the low moral tact to rob a bank, it wouldn't be difficult to track down the one guy in Atlanta that looks like me. Occasionally, someone shows up at my gate offering me money to kill someone. Again, the APD wouldn't have to look far. One witness or fingerprint left behind in my house would be demolished again. In my situation, I'm not able to find a real job, and I'd rather bury myself alive than rejoin the military, especially at my age. I turn 40 next year. Despite my invulnerability to physical damage, I feel those 39 years whenever I finish half a set of push-ups. Given my dwindling funds... I only eat breakfast and dinner. Without gaining weight, I'm still able to jog around the property. Today, when I lock the gate and start the short hike to the main road, a white jeep comes toward me. I only know one person who had an old car like that, and she usually kept a dog in the passenger seat. Why would she come all the way here from Portland, though? That jeep shouldn't risk the drive. She's still tall and thin with new white streaks through her hair, but she definitely wears almost 12 years on her face since I left her apartment. I hope her investments came through and she's got a real house now. 
The world's a much less interesting place without you making headlines down here, Prudence says. I didn't realize I had a fan club, I say. I've always been a fan of you, Nero. The feeling apparently wasn't mutual. You're familiar with property rights. Why are you trespassing in my driveway? Because you're about to have a lot of people trespassing on your property in North Carolina. I got a courtesy call from my former employer. Birch left you the whole of Emerald Isle. Too bad I can't afford a fence to cover it, I say. If Prudence follows the news, she knows my assets are almost drier than her vagina. I don't have a reason to, to dislike her, though. Well, she was a supporter of former President Hatcher's Republican ideals that his cult-like followers wouldn't shut up about even when I was hanging out in those Portland hipster bars. Real estate agents don't have a goddamn soul. She's only here for a cut of the sale because... That's a lot of money. In all likelihood, Prudence stands to profit more through development deals rather than the actual sale. You have an interested group of buyers, Prudence says. How much, I ask. Two million, Prudence says. Like I said, they're a group of buyers. You and I both know no one has that kind of money alone. The McCord estate does, I say. You will have that kind of money when you give me the go-ahead. I have a counter-offer then. Stepping right on her, I wrap my palm around the back of her head. She's still using the same funky-smelling shampoo. Birch had other assets, I say. Find out where he banked and have the funds transferred to me. Then we'll talk about the deal. The Supreme Court seized his money, Prudence whispers right into my mouth. Don't you watch the news? Four million, I say. You're going to make more than that in the end. Two is as high as I could get them to go. I guess I'll have to shop around, maybe pay a visit to your group of investors the way Hatcher hired Birch to get a second term in office. Once again, I'm in the Bank of New America, but wearing somewhat nicer clothes. Prudence and the branch manager sit across from me in a conference room meant for at least 16 people. Bastard didn't bother even turning on the lights. I suppose if it wasn't raining, we'd have more natural lighting instead of a lamp possibly manufactured in 1940. Mr. Sullivan, the manager says, the Glass Onion Realty Company is authorized to transfer the total of $3,500,003 to your account. The new American Supreme Court is taxing you down to an even $2 million. Holy fuck, I say. Good thing you negotiated for more, Prudence says. If you accept this amount, the manager continues, you are relinquishing all property rights to Emerald Isle, North Carolina. Does this sound acceptable to you? Why not, I say. Outside the bank, I am once again a millionaire, though I still feel like the broke bum living in a small house on too much land. I plan on expansion, of course. First thing, I am buying a car. Though, I have to order one from the Genetic Motors plant from Texas. Of course, I'll need another one in matte black if I'm going to go back to being the guy breaking skulls and tying dudes to skateboards. 
So, do you need a ride back to your place? Prudence joins me on the sidewalk. I have to make a phone call, I say. You can go back to pretending I don't exist now. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't advise you as your agent to sell that property in Atlanta and stop pissing off the police department. Much like how I left things in Portland, I walk away without a proper goodbye. Plus, I'm hungry and haven't had lunch in a year. There's a chicken wing place on North Avenue I want to try. Money isn't going to make all my troubles go away. Prudence was right about the APD. While they've left me alone for a little while, there's tension because we both know I'm coming back. In what capacity, I'm still unsure. Jack Rabbit's wings smell like a mixture of buffalo sauce and lemon, and there's a decent crowd inside, but plenty of seats. Once I have my garlic parmesan wings and a jar of sparkling apple cider, I get in the corner facing outward. I'm three flats in when I recognize Detective Torrance's bald scalp reflecting light as if he has a mirror on his head. I find it a little rude that he sits across from me without asking. I think we need another pandemic, I say. I wish more people were germaphobic. I wouldn't be in here if I didn't need to talk, he says. I'm vegetarian. Order celery and get away from me then. Now that you're back on your feet, Torrance says, I can't wait another second to ask for your help on something. It'll keep you out of our patrolman's territory and no one will mind you taking on these people. I seem to recall another cop trying to get my help on something and they tried to torture me in a warehouse. And they're dead, aren't they? If I had a death wish, I would dress up as a woman and go for a walk at three in the morning. Listen, I'm going to get to the point. I know you have a soft spot for helping kids. This is one of those cases. Boys and girls from ages 6 to 12 are going missing. I'm talking prepubescent and school age. If an 11-year-old boy has so much as a leg hair, he's safe. But we just had a school shooting last Friday. Did you hear about that? Apparently, I really need to get a TV, I say. 12-year-old boy. Torrent pulls a photo from his jacket. Tyson McDonald. He had a police-issue 9mm and showed up to school on time for the first time in a month. When his teacher went to call his parents to tell them he'd come to class, he started unloading. Not aimlessly, either. The teacher lived, but she's still in the hospital recovering. Want to guess who he targeted? You're the detective, I chew on my chicken. Girls who had developed breasts. Boys who had any signs of facial hair. I mean, he killed six of his classmates. So, you're thinking sex trafficking and reconditioning, I ask. Some group of people are kidnapping kids, and we're about to see an uptick in these shootings. You're not as dense as I thought. We don't know shit about it, though. That boy Tyson shot himself before we could even get on the scene. You also don't have the manpower to secure every school, I say. Unfortunately, it's going to happen again. From what I heard about you, and know regarding the post office incident, you staked out the place and found Lily McCord. You can't patrol every school either, but I don't know of any other way to catch up to these people, whoever they are. 
what Torrent is telling me probably goes beyond even my lifespan. To establish this kind of network of abducting children of a certain age range and slowly indoctrinate them takes not only time, but also money and manpower. Tyson likely spent years in the system. I'm ordering a couple of vehicles, I say. It'll be a few days before I'm able to really hit the streets. I'll need a police scanner, too. We're anticipating another shooting in two days, Torrance says. Any possible patterns are what we're looking out for. Can you possibly issue an order to shut down the school system on Friday morning? I'd have to get approval from the Supreme Court. That would take a lot longer than two days. Oh, I say. I think I can buy us some time on that. I won't ask any questions, Torrance says. But I'll get back to you. Maybe intimidating the members of the Supreme Court isn't the answer. I recall thinking about blowing up the post office to catch Lily McCord, but instead spent time surveilling everything. What I need is access to the list of missing children, which could be hundreds. Wait, I tug on Torrance's coat. Can you give me a list of every missing child within those age ranges? God, Torrance rubs his head. Come by the station in two hours. I'll get you what you're looking for. Better if you can meet me. You don't want anyone seeing you talking to me over there. Once I get on the phone with the GM plant in Texas, I order a Sermenti in matte black and thoroughbred in red. Then I call my old architect and contractor about expanding the house. I just need more room and a garage, I suppose. A second bathroom is always handy for when I clog another toilet and have to run through the kitchen with my pants to my ankles. Even if children are dying, I have to carry on my personal business. I'm not a good detective so much as someone who can insert himself into situations better than others. There's no risk of injury or death. Everyone else is limited by their mortality. I have to carry the box of missing children's files over my shoulder all the way up the goddamn driveway and there's not a relief when I drop it on my bed. Instead, my muscle stings and I lie down for five minutes before opening the cardboard top. Torrance said there are 107 missing kids from ages 6 to 12. Tyson's photo is on the top. He'd been missing for two years. I immediately assumed he was kidnapped when his tormentor thought he was still fresh and they trained him to use a gun and sent him to school just before he lost his ripeness. Are the kids who survived potential targets, or was the attack merely a test? Perhaps a distraction? There are definitely more missing girls than boys. The girls tend to run young while the boys are the ones missing for years and aging out. Once I organize each age group, there are four boys around Tyson's age. Two of them go to Central Elementary and are in the 6th grade. The other two go to Barack Obama Elementary, which is where Tyson shot himself. What bothers me about Torrance's story is that Tyson wouldn't have an assigned teacher or classroom since he was missing for two years, which means he picked a random room. Perhaps that's what he's feeding to the press. Only one student of the four went missing within the school year. Citadel Roberts. I could call Torrent and tell him that the most likely candidate for a mass shooting Friday is Citadel, 
but I'd like to keep my contact with him to a minimum. However, I need to find out this kid's class schedule. His mother's phone number is listed in his file. Is this Citadel Roberts' mother? I ask. Who is calling? The woman asks. Do I tell her my real name or act like I'm a police officer? At this point, she may not even trust the police anymore. I'm a private investigator, I say. My name is Sullivan. Well, yes, I'm Lorna Roberts. Why are you calling? I just need one little piece of information, if you don't mind. Do you happen to know your son's class schedule? Oh, she says. I hear her open a drawer and go through some papers before talking to herself and verifying what she has. I'm sorry to keep asking, she says, but why do you need his class schedule? I don't want to alarm you, Lorna. The thing is, is that APD is concerned about a situation that happened last Friday. Did you hear about any school shooting? Of course I watched the news. Are you saying my son is going to be involved in something like that? What I can say is I'm going to Central this Friday morning, and I'm going to be listening for any disturbances, but I am also going to keep an eye out for your son, because he might be the next Tyson McDonald. If you help, I can make sure your son doesn't harm himself or anyone else. How are these kids even connected, she asked. I hope they aren't, Lorna. My hope is that I'm just going to get upset because I woke up for nothing come Friday morning. All right. He has homeroom with Mrs. Brown in room 501. At 8.30, he goes to math and English with Mrs. Lamb in 504. He goes back to homeroom for lunch around 12. Then he has history and science and homeroom until 2.30. Christ, I haven't had to pick him up from that school in so long. I'm really sorry, I say. I hope you get to see him again. I have a stack of children who have gone missing, and I'm working to help all of them. Well, thank you, Mr. Sullivan. If nothing happens, would you mind giving me a call? Sure, Lorna. Without my cars arriving yet, I'm walking to Central at 7 in the morning from a teleportation terminal. That bastard kid better show up with an assault rifle if I'm going to put up with this shit. Obviously, I'll stick out around a crowd of people who are mostly under 5 feet tall, so I wear a blue dress shirt and black chinos so I at least look like a teacher while I wait near the school grounds. No sign of Citadel or a rocket launcher. By the time the kids are inside, a bell rings, so I assume they're all going to be in their classrooms. I head into 500 Hall and keep my ears open for any gunshots or screaming. I get to 501 and look in the little window. Still no Citadel. I suppose he could show up later or maybe next week. Maybe he's already dead. In any case, I go to the bathroom and pee in a urinal that's too low to the ground. Who is the other kid Citadel's age from Central? It would be too ironic if I heard a gunshot now and it wasn't Citadel. I'm headed back to the front of the school when I see a kid looking down at the floor while they're practically power walking through the hall. This early in the morning, I can't imagine a teacher let a student go to the bathroom, especially with their book bag on. 
Something about the highlights in their hair doesn't sit well with me either. While a real estate agent like Prudence will get her hair colored monthly, and most new Americans retain their natural hair since the chemicals are too expensive. You late? I step in front of them. When the kid looks up, I see Citadel Roberts through overgrown bangs covering his eyes. With my left knee, I punt him to the floor, kneel down to press against his chest, and pull away his bag. Then I pat him down to make sure he's not hiding a weapon. Let me up, he screams. Get off! You've been missing for months, kid, I say. What's in the bag? As Citadel screams and teachers are coming to their doors, I unzip the book bag to find a police-issue 9mm stashed between two heavy textbooks. Pulling the clip from the gun and stashing the ammunition in my back pocket, I grab the kid and hoist him over my shoulder. A patrol car screeches in front of the school as Citadel is shaking and crying like a newborn baby. The officer starts toward me until he gets a better look at my face. Nero? He says. Call Detective Torrent, I say. Tell him I found one of his missing kids. You have to put that kid down, Nero, the officer says. Let's go to the station and figure this out. This boy and Tyson McDonald had police issue guns, I say. Do you think I'm going to trust anyone in your department to look after him? Rather than teleporting to my house, I set the terminal to send me to Austin, Texas. Back in 2127, I bought an entire apartment complex, and each floor was an open space loft. While I lived on the top floor, I had another floor from my home gym, and a special place intended for my father to die. Fucking asshole escaped, and Rosa shot him in her kitchen. No one was interested in buying the place from me, so it sat there all those years without a tenant. In fact, most of the buildings in that area are empty. That's why no one runs out to help the screaming child I'm carrying inside. I had a little bit more money in the 2130s because I sold another investment property in Austin with the help of Prudence. Setting Citadel on a weight bench, I grab the rope I use for Kier and secure the boy's upper leg so he can't run away while we're talking. I'm not going to torture a 12-year-old boy. However... I'm curious. Holding his chin still, I run my pinky across his upper lip and there's definitely some hair growing in. His voice hasn't started breaking yet, though. I called your mom the other day, I say. She's the one who told me where your classes were. Let me talk to her, he says. Tell her where I am. No one is going to come looking for you here, I say. If you want to go home... You're going to have to talk to me. No, I'm not talking to you about anything. Who gave you the gun I found in your book bag? He tries pulling on the rope I secured him with. Since he's being a little shit, I want to pull on his hair, but I bet he's endured worse. Instead, I go over to the sink and there's a pair of scissors in a drawer. As I approach him, I make every step audible. As I approach him, I make every step audible by stomping a little as I clip the scissors to taunt him. Pinning him to the bench, 
I start cutting strands from his overgrown, bleached hair. Each try, he tries to pull away. I hold him by the jaw and snip the blades near his eyes as a warning. While he's a child and clearly conditioned to hurt other kids, I need him to cooperate with me. His attitude tells me he's unwilling to talk, so I'll break him down. You want to answer my question? I ask. Where'd you get the gun? It doesn't matter what I tell you, he says. They're coming for my family. Who? I ask. All because you didn't get to shoot up your classroom? I said it doesn't matter. My landline is upstairs, so I walk slowly to the elevator so the kid doesn't see my anxiety. I may have saved Citadel's classmates and teacher, but I don't think he's lying about his captors going after his parents. As soon as I'm on the top floor, I run to the kitchen where the phone is mounted and dial the APD. When the operator answers, I ask to be transferred to Detective Torrent. After a two-minute pause, he gets on the line. What you got for me, Nero, he asks. Citadel Roberts, I say. I heard you ran off with a kid this morning. Where are you, Nero? I need you to bring him in. He says whoever kidnapped him is going to kill his family since he didn't get to go through with the attack this morning. Get someone over to their house, Torrent. The phone crackles, and I hear Torrent instructing someone to send two patrol cars to the Roberts residence. If this group is organized well enough, they're already dead. <sighs> Dispatch says they already have someone over there. Torrent breathes into the receiver. Are they alright? No word yet. I need you to come back to the station with Citadel or I'm going to have to charge you with kidnapping. You know I can strap a bomb to my body and blow up that whole fucking police station, right? I'll fucking drown you in the sewer for fun, asshole. I hang up and go back downstairs to deal with Citadel. He's trying to get out of the ropes whenever the elevator door opens. So I push him back down and backhand him in the cheek. Admittedly, I don't have any excuse to hurt this kid other than getting information. I'm only furthering his trauma. However, if both of these little gunmen had police issue 9mm, then the APD might have a few officers involved in this behind the scenes. Your parents are dead, I say. They're fucking lucky, unlike you, little shit. I'll keep you here as long as I need to. You only wish you were dead like them. I don't, I, I, I don't know any of their names, Citadel says. Who? The men who took me. I saw some faces, but just the ones that hurt me. Hurt you. Yeah, they had sex with me. Jesus. I didn't need to hear that. So, whoever took him used Citadel for a plaything and taught him how to shoot. Didn't take much conditioning if he had to do it to save his family. You don't know where any of them are or where they kept you. I was dropped off this morning and told 
not to look back after they took the hood off me. They said, if I didn't kill someone, then they'd kill my parents. Did you know Tyson? I ask. No. He shakes his head. I didn't know anyone else. I, I thought it was just me. Doesn't give me much to go on, kid. I, I'm sorry. Looking away, Citadel's tears finally break through. He was never in fear of his own life today. Only for his parents. To him, I'm the reason they're dead. Whoever kidnapped him is also probably aware that I'm involved now. Your life is going to go on, Citadel, I say. I'm not taking you back to Atlanta, though. Whoever did this will kill you, too. You get to start over as long as you never tell anybody what happened. Where are you going to take me? He sobs. Do you like dogs and cold weather? Michael Pulaski leaves the Atlanta Police Department at 7 p.m., walks to the nearest teleportation terminal, and a couple of blocks later he takes an elevator up to the 11th floor of the Wolf's Knob apartment building. He lives with his wife, Maddie, in a mutt they call Rice. She has his dinner ready only a few minutes before he opens the door and kneels down to pet the dog. So far... I haven't found any deviation in his routine. It turns out that most officers are boring outside of work. Before Pulaski, I spent the last few months following his buddies on the force. Since I relocated Citadel, I get to spend Fridays stalking around Atlanta's school system. His dubious friends haven't shown back up for another 12-year-old reject delivery. All the cops I've studied have been clean. The 9mm I took from Citadel was from the APD stock, so someone wearing blue is involved. The metal door for roof access opens, and Detective Torrance's bald head gives him away even in darkness. I guess he's not such a shitty investigator if he was able to find me. Find any incriminating evidence on my guys? he asks. Not Pulaski, I say, although I haven't taken a close look at you either yet. I stand over him and take the glasses from his face, since they're shining too brightly in the light. They might catch Pulaski's attention. Hopefully, the sound of them breaking won't be heard by anyone either. Your tactics need work, Torrance says. You forget I came to you with this. The 9mm came from your department, I say. I only have a few more officers, but if you want to cooperate, I'd like a list of former officers from the past five years. I can't help you with that since my commissioner put me on new cases. He says we've spent too much time on this. Good thing I don't have a boss. Doesn't mean you don't need allies, Nero. Men like Pulaski aren't the enemy. What these kids, like Citadel Roberts, go through is worse than death. 
They'd all be better off in a lineup getting shot in the head one by one. One bad cop makes you all the enemy. I tried working with your ilk years ago, and your whole fucking lot treated me like a criminal. That's over, Nero. I, You need to be an example for your people. I don't think the issue is just a bunch of sick sex cultists. I go to the edge of the roof and look down to Pulaski's apartment. Considering my place in the world, the last part of the Trinity, I am responsible for balancing good and evil. Unfortunately for my morals, my unwillingness to kill someone will only get me so far. Birch never wanted to hurt anyone either. The thing about ending a life is that an adult has already chosen their path, and sometimes that hurts other people. The idea of strapping a bomb to myself and destroying the entire police department doesn't sound so cold-blooded considering they're all covering for someone. I might be able to get a list of everyone who's checked out a firearm, Torrin says, but that would be pretty extensive. You would have already done that. If you actually cared, I say. I suppose I am a failure in that regard, too. Do you know how many lives would be saved if we stopped being so merciful to the people who cause the most pain? Sounds like you need to get into politics. I hold out my hand for Torrent to shake as I let out a little laugh. He takes it good-naturedly and doesn't resist when I pull him to me. We fall with my face toward the ground and he screams just before we collide with the asphalt. With my weight on top of Torrent, there's no way he'd make it. The few people on the sidewalk keep walking. That's new America. Don't stand the way of the other savagery unless you want to get hurt too. While I'm able to walk away from killing a man for the first time without sirens and guns behind me, Torrent wasn't tried before a jury of his peers. I decided that APD needed to know how far I'm willing to go for a change. My kindness in allowing them to keep living went unappreciated too long. Still, I think of the man I called my father and the values he instilled in me. Lying on my couch, Torrent's blood stained all over my clothes, I see us falling, over and over. The sound of his bones breaking under me with a sickening squish of fluid. The experience of ending a life must be the lowest a human can sink, because I don't know how anyone can acquire a taste for it. Stripping down. I toss the clothes into the fireplace and light some newspaper to get the blaze started. Smoke begins to pour in the room, so I have to reach up and open the chimney vent since I keep it closed for bugs and birds. After I take a shower and towel off, I go to put out the fire and dust the remnants into a hemp paper grocery bag. As I'm cleaning, the belt of my front gate rings. No one should be here at this hour so I finish up and walk over to the monitor in the hallway to see two APD cars and four officers waiting outside.
They can't climb the new gate because of the protective blades at the top. So all they can do is stand around until I go outside. Pulling on some fleece pants, I head down to the concrete pathway and greet the police. Nero, one says. My name is Officer Tompkin Paulson, I say. That's Clint Blackstone, Luke Newman, and Wallace O'Connell. How are you, gentlemen? We're here to escort you to the station, Paulson says. We have multiple witnesses that state you were present at the death of Detective Torrent. So, we're taking you in. Nah, I say. Thanks for visiting, though. I turn around to go and hear one of the officers trying to shake the gate open. If you don't come with us, Blackstone calls, we'll have to call SWAT. Call him, I say. We can all join Torrent soon. Is that an admission? I followed all of these men home for weeks to see if any of them were connected to the kidnappers. All of them were clean, though. However, I'm no longer an innocent man, and they're doing their jobs. Of course, they're guilty of the same crime Torrent committed. Their united front is bullshit. Let me open that gate, I call. They stand back as the iron doors swing toward me. Blackstone and Paulson approach me as the other two pull their 9mm as a safety measure. The ones with the guns will be less difficult to chase down if they take off. Two of you, I point, will not be going home tonight. You threatening us, Nero? Blackstone asks. Paulson tries prying me off Blackstone when I grab him by the hair and kick him in the stomach. Once Blackstone is doubled over on the ground, I reach my arm around Paulson's neck and remove his 9mm from his belt. Firing towards Blackstone's legs, Newman and O'Connell are screaming at me to stop while one of them tries calling for backup. Ah, fuck, Paulson says. He got me in the hip. Nero, Paulson says. We didn't come here to start anything. Tell that to Blackstone, I say. You cops need to know the hierarchy of power in the city. What's it going to take to calm you down, Paulson asks. Hey, Newman, O'Connell, why don't you take Blackstone to the hospital and let's leave Mr. Sullivan alone for the evening? No, I say. You're all staying. I let out another round near Blackstone but it puts a hole in my lawn. I want each of you down on your knees inside the fence, I say. Newman, you first. Oh, fuck that, Newman says. We got SWAT coming. They'll have to drive all the way up here, I say. By then, Blackstone and Paulson are going to bleed to death. If you don't get down on your knees with your wrists behind your neck, I'm going to blow this fucker's head off. Newman tosses his gun toward the car and comes onto the concrete driveway, faces away from me, and follows my orders as I motion for O'Connell to cuff him. When O'Connell follows suit, I push Paulson toward the pair and force him to cuff O'Connell. I put Paulson next to him before closing the gate. 
Here's protocol for the next 60 seconds, I say. I'm carrying Blackstone to my garage, and all of you are going to walk in front of us. I have a cellar each of you will go into. I promise all of you will leave here alive if you don't mess up. Once I lock the three officers in the cellar, I tie Blackstone up on the floor and pull him under one of the cars before jogging down to the two cars they left out in front to turn off their lights before pulling them out of sight near the trees. If SWAT is actually on the way, they're going to be at least confused about the situation. Five minutes later, I hear multiple vehicles pulling up the gravel driveway. From my porch, I see none of them have their headlights on, but they can't keep anyone in a half-mile radius from hearing the redneck security system. I'd like to keep my gate intact, of course. I greet them on the little stretch of asphalt between my fence and the gravel. Four men pop out of the back with old AR-15s as the driver fiddles with the loudspeaker. Nero Sullivan! You are under arrest for the murder of an Atlanta police officer and the assault of four other officers. Better make it five more, I call. These guns won't stop me. Failure to cooperate will result in the United States military seizing your property and... The men start shooting when I grab the end of a rifle and pull one of them toward me. Setting the SWAT officer down after slamming the butt end into his chest... I fire at the asphalt and headbutt the nearest one. Stay down, I tell them, unless you want a bullet through your scrotum. With two officers remaining, they're backing up as they try reloading their magazines. So I run at both of them and grapple them to the ground. Someone tries hitting me in the back with a baton, and I look around to see the driver trying to take me on. I kick his left kneecap hard enough to hear a break in his joint. I fucking said, stay down. You're gonna kill us all, Nero? The driver spits. You lost your mind now? No, I say. I'm looking for what all of you should have two years ago. Leaning down to the driver's level, I pull his radio to my lips. This is Nero, I say. I have four officers locked up. I'm about to send your SWAT boys back home. Until the person who stole 9mm handguns from your facility is brought to me, I will not let my hostages go. We're not leaving without all of you, the driver says. Putting the end of the AR-15 in his mouth, I look at the others pulling themselves off the ground and backing to the truck. Each of them nod as if apologizing, and I wink down at their friend. Why don't you go home, buddy? As the driver starts to return to the truck, his radio goes off and he looks at me. The commissioner and a couple of officers are coming. He looks at me as if I raped his wife. I'll put in a new batch of French toast cookies. Once the SWAT crew clears out, I head back to the garage to let the other officers go. I'm afraid that I'm not an excellent host, so I know they'll complain about their stay later. 
None of them say a word when I escort them to their cars, which is nice. I'm not about to make cop killing a habit and certainly feel my move against Torrent was too rash and in the moment. However evil I am as a result, the police are panicking. Even if the commissioner comes to me empty-handed, he's going to lead me somewhere, whether he's willing or not. And if the military ever shows up on my property, I'm not going to have a choice but to kill every single person who shows up. I'm tempted to pay a visit to the president tomorrow and have him issue a cease and desist order to all law enforcement from contacting me. That might require a few injured Secret Service men. A black car comes to the gate and I'm standing on the other side with my arms crossed, just ready for this bullshit. Two officers accompany this man who clearly threw his clothes on 20 minutes ago and hasn't maintained his white beard in months. Mr. Sullivan, he says, I'm Police Commissioner Cullick. I understand you're following up on the case I ordered Detective Torrent to close. He informed me you were the person who removed Citadel Roberts from Central Elementary several months ago. While you saved numerous lives, we would have liked... Shut up, I say. Who took the handguns from the station? I don't have an answer for that, he says. We keep our firearms quite secure. You already know the gun I found on Citadel was from your station. Opening the gate, I approach Kulik, but go around him to the two officers who are armed with black 12-gauge shotguns. Get in the car, I say. I need to speak to Kulik alone. They're not going to leave, Nero, Kulik says. We came here to take you in. When I turn to look at Kulik, he sprays mace in my eyes, but I know better than to double over. With my right elbow, I hit one of the officers in the nose and lock my foot around the back of his ankle so he goes down. The other one unloads around, which almost knocks me down. Another shot hits me directly in the chest before I push the 12-gauge to the ground and bash my forehead into the officer's cranium. Cullick should have tried a taser instead. My eyes hurt like nails are obliterating my irises, but I'm not knocked out. You come to my property and attack me, I say, trying to cover up for people who were taking children from their homes. I grab Cullick by the throat and lift him from the ground. Rape them. Force them to murder other children and dispose of them like they're dead mice. When he hits the ground, the two officers try tackling me, but I drop all of my weight back on them so they collide with the car. Have we not injured enough of your men tonight, Cullick? I ask. You stalked half my boys, and you still think a police officer did this, he says. Do you know how many of us get killed in this city? How many people will shoot a cop in the head and take everything he has? Blaming criminals for your fuck-ups, I say as if you wouldn't track down whoever shot a police officer with more vigor than some loon who sodomizes children. A hard blow to the stomach makes Cullick's outlook change a little. Holding up 
his hands as blood shoots from his lips after a hard cough. He tries speaking through a rasp. You're right, he says. I have to stand by my men. But none of them took a gun or even lost one in the last five years. Then who has the gun on Citadel Register 2? Kate Beth Pearson, Cullock says. Last time I saw Pearson, she was dead in a warehouse. Makes sense if she and Detective Easton were linked to this. Of course, I can't assume anything since she died in 2137. You're all protecting the memory of a psycho bitch, I ask. That's all the information I have, Nero, he says. Come down to the station. We both know you killed Torrin, and he didn't deserve it. How many of your boys will come when I put a bullet in your face, I ask. This isn't like Dracula. If you kill me, it won't stop the law. There is no fucking law, Kulik. That's why I do this. I'm going to request military intervention, he says. You're just a murderer now, Nero. And if anyone wearing camo shows up on my property, I'll have their blood staining my clothes when I come to your door. You got a wife, Kulik? Maybe a daughter. Isn't her name Jennifer? Kulik stands up. I guess you already knew all about me before I pulled up here. You gonna come after my little girl if I don't stop? You gonna be a coward and murder my wife? No, I say. I'll make them watch while I tie you down, slice open your stomach, and let your dog, Vinny, eat raw steak out of your open carcass. Then I'll cut off all their fingers and burn the ends of their open wounds. Maybe you'll survive and have to spend the rest of your life opening every door, cabinet, and container for them. Sick fuck, Kulik says. Kamish, one of the officers says. Torrin ain't worth this. Nero can't die. Yeah, I get right in Kulik's face. Get the fuck out of here and keep your fat lips shut if you want your family to keep their digits. You are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing only. We're continuing the Nero series with 2143. Yes, this week I remembered because I just finished recording it. I'm recording the sort of out of order, so I recorded the main part of this episode before the intro, and the last two were recorded days apart, so... If you're interested in that behind-the-scenes the, the sort of crap. I've also recorded even more music for this. And I went live on Twitter as I recorded three songs. And I ended up keeping two of them. So you'll probably hear them in this episode. 
There's also a song that I recorded for the original part of the soundtrack that hasn't been used yet that gets to be used for a certain character in this story, and it'll be used again for him in the subsequent chapters. So, if you're not aware of this podcast and you're listening for the first time, this is not the normal format of the podcast, and I will continue in that direction after I finish this series. So, I know I said that I was going to release it over the course of six weeks, but I don't know that I can keep that promise. I'll probably release them sooner than that, just because I want to get back to the normal grind or format, rather, of this. I wouldn't call doing this podcast a grind. It's usually pretty easy for me, other than having to stop because I keep mixing up words or I sound too much like an idiot. But I I have a lot to complain about. But I guess I should save that for future episodes. I am I'm going through the shit lately because I'm I'm teaching for the first time and I'm only teaching one class. But that one class is is proving difficult in some ways. And my professor from my African American lit class last year told us that he liked all of us. He said I don't have to lie and say that I like all of you because a lot of times I have classrooms where I don't like many students. There are always students that I don't like. They have an attitude or, you know, they're just not doing their work. And I find that I don't like all of my students. I like many of them, sure. And most of them are actually doing a good job, well, relatively. But it's it's difficult because this is my first go around and I'm learning alongside them. And I don't know, new teachers generally get a bad rap. And you can always tell when you get a new teacher. And some of them are overtly strict and some of them are overtly lax because they're just figuring things out. If you want to support the podcast, the first thing I need you to do is tell your friends, your family, your enemies all about it. You need to share the link. You need to retweet it. You need to share it on social media. You need to help me out because I can only do so much. People don't realize that if they just try a little for the people that they love, because I'm not a celebrity, I don't have free media coverage. So if you want to help out and you want to support the podcast, retweet my pin tweets because I usually have a link to the podcast there. You can go buy my books on Amazon, on Kindle. Most of them are 99 cents. My novels are a little bit more than that. I have paperbacks. I'm going to have a new paperback called Parked in the Flower Bed next month in November that's going to collect my last four books of poetry in one volume. So look forward to that. I just had my latest book of poetry, my ninth book of poetry, Iconic Misery, come out this month. Back in July, I had Birch come out, which was my fourth novel. So I have a lot for you to check out. And if you like the music in this episode of the podcast, you can go find it in, well, you can find more stuff by me. You can't necessarily find this whole soundtrack on Spotify or wherever you stream music, but just search for Lurking Vowel and you'll be able to find all you want to listen to. So thank you. Now let's get to Nero.
Running the footage from the cameras I installed around each school in Atlanta, I pop a chicken nugget in my mouth as I look for any vehicles that spend a little too much time around the area. Since I started picking up Torrance Slack on this investigation, Atlanta's missing children number hasn't dramatically increased. The downside to preventing more Citadel Roberts from happening is that whoever kidnapped the boys probably buried them somewhere. Unlike movies from old America, children don't come in school buses anymore. It's rare that anyone drops them off in a vehicle. When Mansur Sean designed the teleportation network, his goal was to decrease motor vehicle usage, though it's my understanding most new Americans couldn't afford cars to begin with. My biological parents sure as hell couldn't. If not at school or a public park, where do people swipe children? I know it can happen anywhere, even in someone's backyard. But what I found with each of these cases is that their parents sent them to school and never saw them again. I suppose they might have actors to pretend to be teachers or principals who walk a student off the grounds and into a van somewhere. I haven't seen any students leave the school during the day, though. Back when I took extreme measures to shut down the post office, I went to a teleportation server room and shut everything in Atlanta down. As I recall, school was canceled for a day, too. Unfortunately for me, no one in New America is microchipped to determine who uses the terminals, so it's possible these kids like Citadel teleported to the wrong place, and not by their own mistake. Too bad Mancher Sean died three decades ago. I have no idea who maintains the network now. Because of the teleportation system, it's also not unlikely that these kids are taken all over the world. It was so easy for me to run away to Texas with Citadel. I have to mull over the impossibility of finding these children each day. I think about them more than Torrent. Something about innocent kids suffering outweighs my guilt and the sound of his body turning to jelly beneath me. My actions against the police effectively made them afraid of me, though I find myself wanting to tell someone about my findings. They're no longer interested in these missing children. However, I walk down the street and most people nod and smile. Some men stop to shake my hand. Women motion for me to stand by their kids when they have to tie their shoe or have some other distraction. When I left in 2137, not many of them wanted shit to do with me. If I stop pursuing these people or monitoring the schools, they may creep back to their old ways. The real lead I haven't pursued is Pearson. I thought I knew her before she tried to make me a guinea pig. Easton ran over her with my car, as I recall, so there's no way she's alive in kidnapping children. In the phone book, there's only one person by the name Pearson. Either Cason Pearson is Kate Betts' brother or father. All I need to do is confirm he knows of her. Hello? A man answers the phone. Yes. Is this the Pearson residence? I ask. Yeah? I'm calling from the Birmingham Police Department. I was hoping to speak with Kate Beth. Are, are you serious? Kate Beth died years ago. Oh, 
so sorry, I say. Are you her father? Kaysen hangs up the line. I wonder what hour I should pay him a visit. His address is 127 Sherman Lane. Going to my office, I have to look for Sherman on my map of Atlanta because I've never heard of it. Turns out, it's an old residential street near Estelle, but very few people live past the city limits. From what I know about old American history, most smaller towns lost their populations in the 2020s because all the jobs moved to urban areas. Places like Bremen or Carrollton don't even have teleportation terminals. The Sarmenti's engine is softer than the model I owned before. Since there's no traffic, I end up in Austell in half an hour. I'm not certain if I'm going to gain anything from harassing this guy. Either he's mourning the death of his daughter, or he's helping smuggle kids around the city. With my headlights off, I can't see the mailboxes, but most homes on the street look abandoned. The only house with a light on inside has 127 posted on the door. If I pull into that driveway, there's a chance Kaysen will hear the tires over the broken concrete. Instead, I park in the grass across the street and softly shut my door. Since it's only a little after 10 p.m., he's likely awake or only recently asleep. The garage is open with a Ford truck parked inside, so I walk up to the door and look in the window to see a dark kitchen and lights on in the den. Leaning out of sight, I try turning the knob and it's locked. I can't imagine anyone wanting to come all the way out here to rob this guy. Rather than make a bunch of noise outside trying to open a window or unlocked door, I put my fist through one of the small window panes to let myself in. Only a moment later, Kaysen Pearson looks up at me with a baseball bat in his hands. He's probably five foot ten, perfectly clean shaven, and not nearly as young as I'd thought. Get the fuck, he starts. I pull the bat from his grasp and place a hand on his lips. I was with Kate Beth the night Easton killed her, I say. My name is Nero. Well, Nero, you owe me for the window you just broke, and I'm calling the police the moment I get your ass out of here. Pulling the man over my shoulder, he tries beating and kicking me. After a pleasant stroll to my car, I drop him in the trunk and go start the engine. What the hell do you want with me, asshole? He screams. Instead of taunting him, I turn the right off Sherman and take us back to the ramp leading to I-20. As I hear Kaysen tumbling in the trunk, I try to see if this car will rattle some windows by pressing the accelerator all the way down until I get to the first Douglasville exit and go toward an abandoned motel. We're not far from his home, but if Kaysen ran away, he'd have a hell of a time getting back. I didn't anticipate throwing him in the trunk and driving here. Am I going to drive him home and drop him off like a divorced dad on Sunday? He tries landing his foot in my stomach when I pop the door. After a hard thud on the weeds growing from cracks in the parking lot, Kaysen crawls away toward an open room without a door on the rusted hinges. All I have to do is stand on his back and listen to the breath push out of his mouth.
Kate Beth, I say. You're a dad, right? Do I look like I could be her fucking dad? Kaysen asks. I'm her husband. Almost ex-husband. Kate Beth didn't wear a ring and she never told me about a husband. Plus, she was apparently fucking Easton for years. Hell, I don't even know how the divorce process in New America works. She lived with you before the end, I ask. I had to move out a week before she died. I take my foot off his back and nudge him over. I found out about her fucking that old guy and wanted her out, Kaysen says. Instead, two cops showed up out of their jurisdiction and forced me out. Petty, I nod. A kid came into Central Elementary with her gun in his backpack. He was going to be the second in a series of school shootings. So, Kaysen says, you think I know who had something to do with that? I figured you know something, especially if you were married to her. Hopefully his shirt won't rip. Once he's off the ground, I toss him toward the GM and plant my foot in his ass. Kaysen, if you don't give me anything, I'm going to beat you till you bleed and tuck you into one of those moldy beds. Hey, dick cheese, what if I don't know shit? I hope your lungs are stronger than your lies then. Kaysen waves and shuts his eyes hard. Even if he doesn't know anything about the gun... There's something about Kate Beth I don't know. Kate Beth wouldn't want to hurt children. Whoever took that gun was probably in the evidence room. I used to run inventory in there. I'm the one who got her the job with APD after her schooling. You fired or quit, I ask. That piece of shit detective she was fucking had me laid off. I had no idea who would have replaced me. So... If someone got the gun from the station, is the evidence room easier than getting in and out of the armory? Not even the commissioner has access to the guns, but hey, if a gun is sitting on a shelf with a tag on it, why wouldn't it disappear? Okay, I say. We're going back to your place. You're going to make a phone call to whoever was your superior officer before you left. Ask them who was over evidence when Kate Beth died. Tell them you want to know if they have her ring. No, sir, Kaysen says. I'm not talking to nobody from that goddamn police department. Go ahead and shoot me in the head or tie me upside down. Whatever. What's your aversion to the cops now? I ask. Someone will hear the phone call. Someone a lot smarter than you. They'll come after me. And you don't know who? I said they were smart. I dropped Kaysen off on his exit. He can walk the rest. Considering the options, I can either go find the officer currently in charge of the evidence room and shake them until they tell me. I doubt they know, though. The look Kaysen gave me communicated a fear that originates in someone else's murder. Someone sees something they shouldn't, and they die. How many guns have ended up in that evidence room over the years, though? The only reason they had Kate Betts was because she had it on her at the crime scene. I evidently need to entrap a cop and have them shoot themselves, or I could get a 9mm and have someone else leave it at a crime scene.
A new fireworks store opened in Grove Park last week, and it looks like a shack someone used to cook human barbecue. However, I assume they have smoke bombs. I like the ones with different colors like blue and neon green. Since it's late, the place is closed, but I make my way around back and find a small crate to carry inside. I'm surprised neighborhood kids haven't already looted the place and put it out of business. I'm about to grab some smokers when I hear the reason why. A shotgun's pump sounds louder than church bells in this quiet room. I turn to see a guy in a white shirt, suspenders, and a burgundy tie sporting a salt and pepper mustache. Pretty appropriate for his age. He dresses well if he's the owner of this juvenile bait shop. Browsing for the holidays, he asks. If you have pellets in that gun, you might blow this whole place up, I say. Slugs. I like to hit what I'm shooting at without cracking all the windows. You must not see well, I say. But you can see my outline. I walk closer, and he puts the barrel right on my chin. If he shoots, it'll hurt, but he better have some jib left in his jive if he's going to outrun me. When that bullet bounces off my face, I say, I'm going to hold you down and light one of those screamers in your ass. If you want to steal so bad, fine. Take what you want. He sets the gun on the display case and kicks the crate I took over. When I bend over to pick it up, he tries punching me in the ribcage, which mostly hurts his knuckles. So, it's you, he says. The big freak about town. Yeah, but usually people call me Nero. Well, call me Caesar Salad. While I cram all the smoke bombs into the box, the old man sits on a stool and lets out the most theatrical sigh I've heard since some college kids tried doing Shakespeare in Piedmont Park. His performance is more believable, though. What is this a front for? I ask. You come here to bust me and take my cheapest products? No. I say, you happen to be closed when I needed these. I can pay you if you fire up your card reader. Take them. You're smart enough to know the loss won't really matter. I was only in here because my old lady's mad at me. You had nowhere else to go? Bars are closed, he shrugs. What's your name, by the way, I ask. Eddie, he says. A good old American name for a new American asshole. How do you really make your money, Eddie? Ah, come on, nobody in this world has any money. I get by with a liquor store my family built in 2095 and occasionally winning at pool. With my eyes the way they are, I ain't winning much. So it's mainly the booze and fireworks that's getting us by. Say, Eddie, I put the crate down. 
How many of these would it take to fill a building with smoke? You can get a room pretty smoky with a few, but all anyone's going to do is open a window. If you're looking for something to get people out of a building, though, I suggest putting a bunch of cherry bombs in a bag and tossing it down a chimney or vent. Something that loud will make people run. Well, hell, I say. I was looking forward to using the smoke. Why not both? Go for theatrics, kid. Eddie follows me to my car and looks up and down the street as if patrolling for giant mutant rats ready to eat us alive due to an outbreak of some new virus. I'm hoping nothing in the car causes all these fireworks to go off in my back seat. I'm missing one element, though. You know where I can find a pistol or revolver at this hour, I ask. Expecting to run into Clint Eastwood come sunrise, Eddie asks. Actually, I only need the gun. It doesn't even have to work. You never heard of a pawn shop, kid? Hold on. Stay right there. Eddie goes back inside the store and returns only a moment later with a Colt Python with the shiniest wooden handle I've ever seen on a gun that old. The only legal manufacturing of guns in New America is for the military and police force, and neither are allowed to take their firearms when they're off duty. Of course, plenty of people break rules. Where'd you get all these toys, I ask. You said it didn't have to work, Eddie says. And that one don't work. Where's that liquor store of yours, I ask. I promise I'm not headed there next. Marietta Street. Now, let me go back to sleep. If you need anything else, please bother someone else. I have to stop midway through climbing the metal ladder leading to the roof. The only issue is that someone might spot me panting and hoping my arms don't give out. I'm carrying a little more weight on my back, but I'm supposed to be a bit more durable than this. By the time I'm up there, I have to sit down against an AC unit and let my legs stop throbbing. Pulling off the cap to the roof vent, I first drop in the smoke bombs, but I expect the cherry bombs to set them off. Maybe someone will hear the bag drop and try to investigate, which will let more smoke inside. Next, I light the wick of the bag Eddie helped me put together and drop the cherries inside before capping the hole again. Before I even get to the roof access door, the fireworks start going off and an alarm inside starts to sound. I look down at the street leading to the entrance and the police officers start evacuating the building. I'm not sure how long I'll have to pull this off, but I imagine I'll see men from the fire department before I run into any cops. The stairwell from the roof runs all the way to the first floor, so I put my legs over the railing, tuck my arms to my chest, and slip down hoping I don't hit every metal bar or concrete step on the way down. My shoes crinkle under my feet when I hit the white tiles, and I look underneath to see my prints perfectly imprinted in the floor. So, I need to burn these shoes when I get home. The evidence room is near the back of the office, and I'm 
coughing and struggling to see through the smoke while I make my way around the random desk and chairs. Whoever was guarding this room left the door open, which is definitely against whatever protocol they're supposed to follow. I'll tag the revolver and put it on a shelf after I print off the officer roster for this station. There's a computer near the door where all the evidence is tracked, but each officer who maintains the evidence room for the day has to sign in. I'm hoping they keep the records as far back as 2137. The printer from the movie Wall Street starts grinding out the roster when I hear the fire engine sirens right outside the door. The funny thing is is that I didn't plan a way to leave out of here. Was I going to climb back up to the roof? I can't even leave out the front door. With a wad of papers under my arm, I see their uniforms, but can't make out their faces, which means if I hunch down, they may not be able to tell it's me. I go through the emergency exit, which leads to the same alley I came through to get to the roof. This time, there are two officers standing on the edge near the street. Ah, shit. One of them notices me. Fucking Nero tried to kill all of us. Hey, this is Tenpenny. The other officer turns on his radio. We need all available officers. I kick Tenpenny in his testicles and snatch the radio receiver off his shoulder before headbutting the other officer. Keep your mouth shut, I say. I know where both of you live. Tenpenny, you got that young boyfriend from Philly, right? Maybe I can have his balls bronzed for you. Okay. Tenpenny holds up his hands. Rather than going directly home, I park my car at a waffle diner across from a teleportation terminal. I can go over this paperwork in Austin at my old apartment building while the police cool off. Tenpenny and his friend might still tell someone what they saw tonight. I'd hate to make good on my threat. Before I brought Citadel here, I hadn't been in Austin for over a decade. I sort of forgot about the property. Unlike the land Birch left me in Emerald Isle, I can't flip this for a profit. Everything is covered in dust, including my bedspread, so I have to change the linens before I can sleep. In the year 2137, the same officers maintained the evidence room in three shifts. Reginald Chase, Godfrey Little and Shelton Moreland. After Kate Bet's death, Godfrey is absent from the roster. I'm sure if I went to the Atlanta Public Library and looked through the newspaper microfilm, he'd be listed in the obituaries or early retirement celebrations. His shift was five to one. If someone lifted the gun, it was probably after dark. I'm not even sure what to do with this information. So I put my bedclothes in the wash and take a nap on the couch. That nap is interrupted six hours later when the sun comes through the floor-to-ceiling windows and I have to put the sheets in my dryer before they get stinky. How long before someone steals the gun I left in the evidence room and it ends up in the backpack of another kid? Commissioner Cullock opens an evidence bag and tosses the colt on his desk. This morning... Frisco Mana, an 11-year-old student at Barack Obama Elementary, tried to use it, and his teacher tackled him. We don't have a register on this gun, Cullock says. It predates 2085. 
You know that you could have just asked to plant evidence in our lockup, right? Then the person who stole it would have known, I say. Okay, Nero. You proved we have a security issue. I think I proved more than that. Sure. We have the officer in charge of evidence security on unpaid leave right now, and we're investigated. That's all we can do. I already know you're not bound by the same rules as us. The stolen colt tells me two things. Someone is only taking the guns out of evidence because they're more accessible. And they're not very bright because they didn't test the gun first. Then again, they might have sent Frisco in with a broken gun to prove they're still out there. Frisco's been missing since 2140 and walked into his first grade classroom, though. I'll let you know what I find, I say. If you want to work on this together, that is. You will no longer receive pushback from us, Nero. You've made it clear you think you're above the law. No, I say. I'm not interested in law. It doesn't apply to me at all. I was picked by God for this. Each week, I have to change the batteries and SD cards and the cameras I keep at each school. Today, I actually have footage that I could use to get closer to these people. This only makes me anxious because I have to wait until nightfall and sneak around to get the footage, so I'll have a few hours to kill. Eddie's Liquor Store, Old American, looks like it used to be a Piggly Wiggly. The floor tiles are older than Eddie. He's wheeling in cases of McCord Moonshine, which isn't as tasty as Arthur's mash. Well, there's Frankenstein, he says. That gun you lent me came in handy, I say. You hear about the kid who almost shot his teacher today? I've been here all day, and you don't see a TV in here, do you? I don't know if it made the news yet. Just thought you want to know I'm a little closer to saving some kids. Hoorah, Eddie says. You coming to buy another case of mash? Sure, I'll take one. I think I paid you back for the fireworks by now. God, I wish some kid would toss a match in that place and blow it up. Wait up at the counter and I'll bring you your booze. With such a big space... Eddie shouldn't be the only one working here, especially at his age. I'm not the kind of guy who drinks alone, so I have boxes of clear green alcohol sitting in a closet. I throw a party, but that requires friends. How much it take for a big guy like you to get plastered on this shit? Eddie asks. One jar will do it. Jesus, if I drank a jar of this stuff, my wife would think she won the lottery. I park down the street from Barack Obama Elementary and wait a minute to see if anyone's around. Exchanging the memory cards and batteries requires a little organization on my part, so I carry a case that separates them with labels for each position. As I approach the lamppost across the school, I recall that Citadel's parents were murdered. However, I don't recall the police saying anything about Frisco's family. I also never saw the kid in person. Will he be returned to them with police protection? 
Maybe his former teacher was smart enough to warn the police over the phone or something. It's also possible his family moved during the period he went missing. When I look at the footage, Frisco walked to the school. He wasn't dropped off like Citadel. Footage from another camera shows him leaving a teleportation terminal. Now I have to go look at the logs for that location. Or I could call and ask. Atlanta teleportation, a man answers. How may I assist you? You are located near the old Jefferson Tate campus, right? I ask. Yes, sir, but our offices are closed for the evening. I'm the evening maintenance associate. I just need to know if you're in there, in case I have to come over. I need some information about the terminal down on the street from Barack Obama Elementary. Unfortunately, that's not public. Uh Uh-huh, I interrupt. My name is Nero. You've heard of me. Oh, he says. What do you need specifically? Around 8.15 this morning, a boy teleported there and tried to shoot his teacher. I need to know where he came from. Right. I'm, I'm looking through the log. Thank God you gave me a specific time because so many kids go through in the morning. Looks like he came in from Chattanooga. All right. Thanks for your time. I've never been to Tennessee other than driving through on the way to Portland. I guess I need to take a trip to Chattanooga in the morning. My earlier theory was that if this wasn't based in Atlanta, then the teleportation terminals helped conceal their identity and take the kids far from their homes. But it could just be that Frisco was sent to Chattanooga and back to Atlanta as a way to thwart snoopers like me. Usually, I slide the cases of whiskey I buy from Eddie across the floor and into the closet but now I have to pick it up to stack on the others. The bottom of the box says it's made and shipped from Chattanooga, Tennessee. There's not money in liquor like there used to be. With haptic masks, people tend to zone out in their own worlds and don't need intoxicants. When I used to hang around Gen Z Loeb's bar where I met Rosa, the number of patrons was sparse. I never bought a haptic mask though maybe I'd benefit from mentally checking out from everything. The guy from Atlanta Teleportation didn't tell me where in Chattanooga, Frisco came from, so I might as well go to Seattle. When I arrive, whatever expectation I had for this city makes me wish I'd stayed in Atlanta. Every building I see up and down the street is abandoned. A bridge merging two sides of the river is missing a huge chunk in the middle. And the Largest structures appear to have metal frames reaching upward, but they're hovering over empty spaces. Looking at the map on the terminal, I have my answer about Frisco, because there's only one terminal in this county. So I start roaming away from downtown and try finding actual people. No one is around me, so it feels like I'm investigating the aftermath of an atomic bomb. When I get close to another section of the river, I see a power substation in front of a long building made entirely out of shiny dark wood. Sort of like the color you'd see on a barrel covered in lacquer. Unlike everything else here, remnants of old America, this place is relatively new. New construction is rare in New America because no one has the money for it. 
An aesthetically similar sign swings from a post reading, New Brand Distillery. Apparently, this is where Eddie is getting much of his liquor from. This place is within walking distance of the teleportation terminal Frisco used. A car is approaching from the far end of the road. The steel bars on the front tells me it's a cop. I doubt the police here are aware of me. It's also the only car I've seen on the road since I arrived, and the officer, coincidentally, is the only person I've seen. Morning, he waves with his window down. Need any help, sir? Um, I walk a little closer. I'm from Atlanta, and just noticed this really beautiful distillery. I don't think I've ever seen a building like it. Yeah, well, it's private property, and I got a call about someone wandering around the place. Oh, I've been on the sidewalk the whole time. Maybe just keep walking, okay, buddy? Actually, do you mind talking for a second? I lean into the car. There was an incident at Barack Obama Elementary yesterday, and a suspect came in straight from that terminal over there. Sorry about that, but I have to make my rounds. Just move along. Who called you, by the way? I point it back at the distillery. Do they not have security? Please move away from my vehicle. I turn around and walk straight on the blacktop path leading to the parking lot. The officer exits his car and starts following me. Maybe we should just have a quick powwow, I ask. Sir, if you don't get off this property, I have to take you in. That's when I face the officer who has to bend his neck up to see me and cross my arms. He's protecting something. While this place not be connected to Frisco or the kidnappings at all, I still have to investigate. You got a gun? I ask. Yes, I'm a police officer. Mace? No, I don't personally carry. What about a taser? Chattanooga police only carry firearms. Who came up with that policy? There are no local laws. It's true, though. When New America was founded in 2085, the President and Supreme Court are the two branches of government. There are no officially recognized state borders or county ordinances. I'm just fucking with this guy, though. Sir? Final warning, he says. You're going to need backup to take me down, I say. I'm just browsing. He looks around me and I hear people gathering outside the distillery's entrance. Are they not busy enough inside to ignore one guy walking around out here? The officer draws his weapon and takes aim at my legs. Shoot, I say. See what happens. Wait, someone says. A woman approaches us and holds up a hand to the officer. Oh, Miss Luna, the officer says. Maybe you should wait inside. Hello, sir, Luna says. I'm the day manager here, and I'm the one who called for a courtesy officer to see about you being here. We do not have anyone on our roster for official business today. What about unofficial business, I ask. If you need to be here for some reason, then you need to schedule an appointment. No, I say. 
I'm now curious enough to actually walk inside and take a look. Since you called him here, I guess it's a question of whether or not you want to see me beat up a copper not today. Okay, you just threatened an officer, the cop speaks up. I only have to reach down a little to grab his right wrist, and he discharges around before dropping his gun. The shot makes all the looky-loos go back into the building. I pick up the man by putting both hands under his armpits and make him face me at eye level. Have you ever heard of the Trinity? I ask. Birch? Yeah, the man nods. Are, are you Nero, that guy from Atlanta? Yep, I say. You want to pick up your gun and leave now? After he agrees to go, I turn my attention back to Luna, who is even shorter than the officer. She's probably around 40, but I can tell her job must be difficult because of the gray streaming from her temples to the end of her hair. Want to give me a chore? I ask. No, she says. Listen, I didn't even know this place existed five minutes ago. I came here for an entirely different reason. Now your reaction gives me reason to suspect that someone or something in this place is the root of my investigation. I can't have you disturbing my workers when they're around alcohol and other materials. We have a strict no-visitors policy. Then let me speak to the owner, I say. Could you just tell me what you're looking for? Another car arrives, but this time the driver isn't a cop. Chattanooga is overcast with absolutely no sign of the sun other than the white light in the sky. And this man has on sunglasses. Luna tries pulling me out of the way and the driver holds up a hand as if to tell me to move. Instead, I stand directly in front of him with my legs against the front fender. Mr. Loria, Luna waves him back. Come, come back in five minutes. Opening the door, he leans his head out. Excuse me, he says. Are you the owner? I point back at the distillery. Yes, he nods. Could you please step aside? I'll follow him inside. He's not going to leave, obviously. Luna chases me as I follow his car to the parking lot, though. Are you his little bitch? I ask. No, but I am the manager of the distillery. Luna says. Loria jogs up the steps and practically blips out of sight. The inside of the building smells like sourdough bread and vinegar with a little caramel. A staircase leads to a small office space. He collapses in a chair and tosses the sunglasses on a pile of paperwork before resting his forehead in his palms. Loria, is it? I ask. He doesn't respond, but Luna runs into the room and tugs on my wrist as if I'm interrupting a master at work. If you don't get the fuck away from me, I say. This man just showed up and scared away a police officer, Luna says. I can't get rid of him. Does the name Frisco Mana mean anything to you? I ask. Maybe Citadel Roberts? Loria opens a fountain pen and starts signing accounting rosters. I find his silence rude, but impressive. Then again, I might not intimidate him since he's six foot five and he doesn't have to look up to me. Look, Luna says. He doesn't know these people. I told you to fuck off, I say. Jesus, did you forget what I did to that police officer? Luna, Loria says. Go back to work. There's another desk 
with a rolling chair, which I steal to sit across from Loria. The guy has a jawline that makes me look like a chinless wonder. After finishing his work for the day, which took all of 60 seconds, he looks up at me. While his eyes convey annoyance, the rest of his face resembles the statue of David. Oliver, he says. I'm sorry, I say. He exhales and looks at the sunglasses before giving me a half-assed smirk. Oliver, he says. Conversationally, people tend to ask each other for their first names, which you have yet to offer. Nero, I say. Nero? Was your mother some sort of historian? Never knew her. It's the Italian word for black. I wasn't named after anyone in particular. So, Nero, why have you come here? Surely not to harass one of my employees for the hell of it. The names I mentioned earlier, I say. They're boys who tried to murder their teachers and classmates in Atlanta. They were missing for years, and once they got close to the puberty, someone sent them to kill other children. Oh, yes, Oliver says. I've heard. Didn't know their names, though. I only pay attention to the news when I'm on it anyway. I've never heard of Oliver and didn't even know new brand existed prior to my arrival. Considering he drives a newer model of GM, I'm guessing he's doing well for himself. Where'd the name new brand come from, by the way? I ask. My father built this place based on a recipe he said his great-grandfather made during the dark years. Unlike me, he had a sense of humor. New brands seemed ironic enough to him for some reason. Very to the point. He's still with us, I ask. He passed away last year, Oliver says. Now, I have some work to do, and I'm sure you have other people to bother. Actually, I think I'm going to need a little more of your time. But first, we need to work on your lack of respect for me. Rather than chew me out for being so audacious... Oliver opens a drawer, puts a file folder inside, and opens a new one to begin signing more papers. This is my cue to push everything off his desk, pick it up by the side, and flip it over. Rather than scream or back away, Oliver remains seated and caps his pen. I apparently am lacking in notoriety, I say. I mean... You named a whiskey after Arthur Lindsay, but there's no Nero anything. Arthur is a legend. But he didn't save the world or else we'd still have the internet, cell phones, and an inflated economy. I'm the future, Oliver. And I will pin you down, force open your mouth with my dirty fingers, and pull your tongue with a pair of pliers until you start talking. You have a subtle approach to human interaction, Oliver says. I don't name any of our products, though. Before I can grab him by the collar, Oliver pulls me down to the floor by my wrist and tries twisting my arm around as his legs push against my ribs, and he plants all of his weight on my chest. Admittedly, I'm surprised, because usually people fold like kindergarten origami fortune tellers when I try hurting them. However, 
he's not entirely aware that he will have to eventually get off of me. And I will still be alive when he's panting from using all of his strength. But I don't want to wait that long. So I push my left ankle over and under me. Push up and Oliver tumbles over. Now I have the chance to grab him by the collar. And I didn't want to hurt his pristine face. He's so damn pretty. But he's also an asshole who might be involved in human trafficking. A couple of knocks to his right cheekbone and I expect him to beg me to stop. Instead, he relaxes his entire body weight while holding onto my arm so we fall together. We can do this until you're bruised and bloody, Oliver, I say, but I'll walk out of here without a mark. I don't even know what you're asking for, he says. Frisco Mana went to his school directly from the teleportation terminal here, not even a mile from this building. There are a lot of buildings here. This was the first one I saw with people inside. Can you please get off me, Nero? I rise, but don't offer to help him off the floor. I might have to pick up the desk and throw it at his head. I'm a dead end. Oliver says. What you're looking for isn't here. Not with me, anyway. The police officer who was here when I showed up, I say. New Luna. Your business is connected with the police in some way because she was able to get a cop over here before I could even walk on your property. Who? Officer Redmond? His patrol route is in this area. It's not like he has anything better to do. The Colt revolver that Frisco had on him was broken. I know because I planted it in the APD's evidence room eight months ago. Oh, Oliver says. So because I know a police officer's name and somehow the police are connected to this, then I'm automatically a sociopath? No, you're a sociopath because it took me wrestling you like a reluctant prom date to get you to talk. Given how easy it is to make Oliver laugh, I'm sure he's a lot of fun at funerals. The fact that I'm not cracking him only makes me want to try harder, though. I bet even if he had a gun pointed at his temple, he'd maintain his stone exterior. I bet there is something you care about, though, I say. Actually, I have a funny story for you. Sit pretty for a sec. Oh, shit, your face. Sorry. I've taken a few punches before you came along. Where were you in 2127? You look younger than me. That car you're driving is a GM. I paid a visit to their plant in Texas back then. I was young and full of mostly piss, and a redhead took most of my cum. But see, I was angry and decided I was going to blow up that plant. Seems to be a reoccurring plan in the back of my mind, because I almost blew up the Atlanta post office once. You know what stopped me, though? Any guess? Your conscience? Oliver says. Deuce ex machina. An act of God himself. Bert showed up and stopped me. 
but now he's gone. That means I am Deuce Ex Machina Oliver. I am the act of God that is going to stop you. And one thing we know about God is that he can really rain down hellfire. What do you think a little fire will do to your distillery? Oliver's eyes changed their message. Now he's getting it. I'm willing to come in here and destroy his office with no provocation. So why wouldn't I burn down the whole place? There are security cameras at the terminal and at the entrance of this property. I can show you the footage. Indeed, there's a monitor in the corner of the room. Oliver turns the clock on every feed back to 8.13 a.m. from yesterday. Frisco walked to the teleportation terminal from the opposite end of the road leading to New Brand Distillery. I might buy this setup if he actually passed the distillery instead of someone dropping him off far away. I'm not going to hassle Oliver anymore today, though. If he's involved, he's aware I'm getting close. And that's enough for now. I now have a new target for my stalking hobby, though. Luna sees me as I'm coming downstairs and shows the chipped nail on her middle finger. I was just going to leave. Now I'm detouring in her direction. You come by those gray hairs honestly, I ask. I hope you're leaving here very disappointed, Luna says. How could any man walk away upset after he got a chance to meet you? She goes over to a group of men, pouring some concoction into a glass receptacle. Maybe I need to find a new girlfriend when I figure all this out. By then I'll probably be 50 and will pass my best years. The chamomile and lavender tea doesn't help with nightmares. I always wake up when I feel and hear Detective Torrance's bones break. Keeping my attention on his case made me almost forget I killed him. What disappointed me most was that Oliver Loria didn't have a basement full of kids. He's actually boring with his routines. He probably spends two hours at work each week, doesn't own a TV or haptic mask, reads from a library of old books, and occasionally brings a woman home to fuck. A good-looking guy like that could have a wife and a gazillion kids. About once a month, he goes to another country like Italy or Spain for a vacation. What's he biding his time for, I wonder? Maybe with me getting too close, Oliver figured he should cool down. After all, those kids are gone for years, but I'm probably trying to keep the chase going to forget what I've done. Why feel guilt for what I meant to do, though? If care hadn't brought me up to believe killing is wrong, would I have ever felt this way? Each clue or lead I find, I have to wait. Since I can't get back to sleep, I put on some pants and figure I'll take a drive. Sometimes riding around with my headlights off lets me see a different view of the city. But as I turn over the engine and idle out of my gate, I think back to Oliver. 
if he has good money from selling liquor, then surely he has other investments I haven't seen. The city hall won't be open at 2 in the morning, but I can always find a way in. Since computers can't connect via network or even Bluetooth, all of the digitized property records are on one server with a single PC connected. All of the property records are public information, but a citizen has to put in a request and wait for a printout to be mailed to them. Or, you can offer a bag full of cheeseburgers to the night security guard who lets you in the rear entrance. Their server room is cold, so I'm folding my hands under my arms as I wait for the computer to load. Rather than sit around trying to, f to find anything on Oliver or anyone who owns a substantial amount of property in the area, I clone the data on an SD card. The estimated wait time is 30 minutes. Rose and I used to play a game to pass the time called Teabag. She'd lay with her feet on the headboard and we'd take turns trying to hit each other in the forehead with a bag of herbal tea. Whoever scored five hits first had to make dinner. Neither of us were great cooks. I can boil water for noodles or rice, but I don't eat carbs much these days. So if I want a home-cooked meal, it's either hamburger patties on the stovetop or frozen chicken tenders. She used to make a meatloaf that was essentially ground beef, some breadcrumbs, and a chopped onions. Sometimes she'd burn it, and I would eat half of it anyway. Right now, I'd swallow a whole pan of it if she were back with me. When the transfer is complete, I think the night man and head home. Whatever I find here may lead to nothing. I just wish I'd thought of this sooner. My eyelids are telling me I won't be able to take a look until I sleep a while. When I'm pulling back up my driveway, I feel like pulling off and sleeping right here. After a couple of hours on the couch, my head is throbbing and all of me wants to stay there, but I feel dehydrated and slightly nauseated from the reminder of Detective Torrent in my dreams. Rather than using a glass, I dunk my head under the kitchen faucet and drink as much as I can swallow. I'm left questioning why I'm back here. When I left Atlanta in 2137, I reconnected with Rosa. I figured I was finally going to accept that I can rest without worrying about other people's problems. Birch trying to kill himself and leaving me to die in the fallout makes me wonder what he was really doing. He can't die. But... He's not here anymore. Surely he's somewhere. Birch got me out of some shitty situations, and I'm stuck in a septic tank full of feces and children's corpses. With all the data on the SD card, I can search any term or name to find something, but it's sort of like shining a light on a field of hay and seeing thousands of needles. I first check for my name, and after a moment of waiting, my address in Atlanta pops up. Eddie Noman told me he owns property in town, so I can check his name next. However, only the fireworks stand populates. Maybe Old American is in his wife's name? When I search for the liquor store, the property owner is listed as Nodler Investment Group. The first three letters 
of Eddie's last name, K-N-O. Might be in reference to Nodler. Why wouldn't the fireworks stand be listed under Nodler 2 then? A few more results show up for Nodler, including a mobile home park near Morrow. If Eddie had all this real estate, he probably would have bragged a little more. I was robbing him when he explained this before, so Eddie didn't exactly owe me the truth. The phone number for Nodler isn't an Atlanta area code either. It's too early to call and get anyone on the line at 5 a.m. Since I went through all this specifically to find out if Oliver owns any property in Georgia, I type in his name and expect to see something. However, there's nothing. His last name alone doesn't populate any results. At least I can drive tomorrow and see if the trailer park has any current residents. Sometimes businesses from old America still exist in the database, but only in name. Besides, New America doesn't have any modular home or trailer manufacturing plants. I've seen some that survived since 2033, and they were uninhabitable. On the way, I stop at JJ's Diner, figuring I might need a carb load to get better rest later. Inside, there's one waitress, a cook, and a man drinking a glass of sweet tea at the end of the room. And I just know he might as well be chugging syrup. The best places always make their tea sweet enough that you could pour it on pancakes. What can I get you, sweetie? The waitress asks. What sodas do you have? I ask. We got root beer, apple, cherry, and chocolate. Apple, I say. And can I get three pancakes, a plain omelet, and sausage? Be about ten minutes. The man at the other end of the room pays his bill and waves to me. Now that I'm alone, the silence in here makes every move I make sound louder than two men pounding each other out in an alleyway. You from Morrow? I ask the waitress. No, nah, I'm from Hateful, she says. My husband grew up in Morrow, though. Do you know of a trailer park out there near the old mall? Shoot, she says. You know, there is a place with some run-down trailers and campers near South Lake, but don't nobody go over there. So it's abandoned? Oh, I'd bet my left titty there's some people living there. Some of them have just taken old siding from them warehouses like the ones across the street from here and basically reinforced the walls and roofs. The sausage is a little spicy and by the time I finish the pancakes, my stomach is telling me I need to evacuate the main hatch. When I sit down in the bathroom, everything feels like it comes out of me at once without any lube to help my asshole. I can feel my intestines slowly going back to their normal size. After a big poop, I want to go back to sleep and I rest my face against the Sarmenti steering wheel for a hot minute. The worst part of getting older is mentally feeling like I'm still in my 20s and finding I have physical limitations. If I show up at this trailer park to find nothing special, I'm going to probably stop here again for another round in the bathroom. The first red flag is that the park isn't clearly visible from the main road thanks to tall plain trees. But the second red flag is a freshly maintained gravel road. Whoever lives in there will hear me 
if I drive on the property. I have to leave my car parked in the grass and walk alongside the path so I don't alert anybody. Through the trees, a Winnebago that's torn and broken through the middle sits closest to me. Like the waitress said, there are two structures made up of recycled siding, once used for industrial warehouses as a mean to keep the elements out of old trailers. I bet they cook like ovens in the summer, though. However, there is a log cabin off to the side that looks like someone built it in the last decade. A man sits on a railing smoking a hand-rolled cigarette. His jean jacket is missing its sleeves, and he has ratty hair to match. When the front door opens, a girl about seven years old has her face down, and he starts walking behind her as she goes to one of the old trailers. That could just be his daughter or niece. Maybe he's a nice guy and a good role model. However, this isn't a Thomas Kincaid painting hanging on your grandma's wall. Something is off about this picture. Behind the cabin, I'm not tall enough to see in the windows, and there are no milk crates or random ladders to hoist myself up on. I worry that my weight will break something if I grab onto the windowsill and try to look inside. There's only one door in and out of the place. So there's my third red flag. At this point, I don't need to worry about my cover and go right up to the front door to let myself in. There's only one room inside with a king-sized bed, an industrial sink in the corner, and a toilet. Clearly, no one lives here. Especially not the man pulling up his gray slacks and with an open blue dress shirt. Um, he says. Hello? Hi, I say, paying your granddaughter a visit. What? The girl, I gesture. I don't even know her name, buddy. Covering his mouth so he doesn't scream too loud, I force the man to the wooden floor and make sure I push his nose fully into his face with my foot. The blood stains will likely take a few hours to clean up, and they'll have to dispose of his body somehow. Although, I don't think I'm going to leave any of these men alive. Somehow, I feel vindicated in taking this man's life without question. The girl went into the trailer directly across the gravel path, so I stroll over as the man in the denim jacket comes back outside. Glancing down at my shirt, I have a decent stain running down to my pants. I'm a little disappointed I'll have to throw this whole outfit away. Then this guy pulls out a 9mm that looks identical to the police-issued model Citadel Roberts had in his backpack. Rather than warning me, he goes ahead and Let's out a few rounds until I grab the hot barrel and use my elbow to knock the dirty fucker in the chin. How many other men are there? I ask. Did that fucker send you down here to do this? He asks. Who? Wait. He tries crawling backwards. You're Nero. 
Yep. I jump on the guy's stomach and collapse my legs into his chest. How many? He's wheezing, and I suppose I crush something inside him. So, he won't be able to answer. Well, you're useless now. I hold his mouth shut and pinch his nose. As this guy squirms beneath me, another man emerges from the trailer with a stunner, which he probably uses on that girl. Normally, I don't use guns, but I got denim man's 9mm and fire around into the bigger man's left ribcage. He's not going to die immediately from that shot, of course. Aiming the gun at the bleeding, bearded hog unable to reach his cattle prod, I don't think he's going to answer any of my questions either. Anyone else I need to worry about? I ask. Yeah, your mother's cunt, the man spits. I hope Lilith reminds him that those are his carefully chosen last words. Maybe she'll roast his testicles in lava for what he's done to that girl. Thankfully, the front door's open, and I don't have to theatrically kick it open. Much like the cabin, there are no walls inside. But instead of a guy zipping up his pants, there are about ten kids tied to posts with blindfolds on. Looking back outside, I don't see anyone else around but that second trailer might have an armed man for each kid in here. I know I shouldn't leave them in here, but there's no one inside who can hurt them. Before I reach the door of the other trailer, a woman comes out with her hands in the air. Mister? She gets on her knees. I ain't got nothing on me. Rather than believe her and assume I can walk around to get inside, I aim for her head and let the fresh corpse topple over the stairs and onto the dirt. Kicking her over, I see the stun gun she would have used on me tucked into her pants. Inside, this trailer is empty other than a kitchen that looks like four prison chefs had a food fight inside of and a couch I know I've seen on the Brady Bunch. Smells like an army bunk when everyone hasn't showered or cleaned their asshole in a week. Should I call APD to help get these kids out of here? Or will they merely alert the owner of this operation that it's bust? I sure as hell can't fit ten kids in my car. When I pull their blindfolds away, each of them looks about ten years older around the eyes than they should. None of them appear to fear me. Maybe I'm one of many in a line who have been through here and hurt them. Do any of you know where a phone is? I ask. There's one outside, a boy says. All of you, follow me. I'm calling for help. Four APD cars and a van show up to the scene, and Commissioner Cullock follows shortly in a restored Ford Crown Victoria. As officers search the area, I help load the children into the van when Culloch comes to shake my hand. Doesn't matter who is right or wrong, he says, because these kids are going home today because of you. I'm going to follow this van down to the station, I say. 
and I'm not opposed to that. I'll let the boys know you'll be there. It's after 2 p.m. when the last set of parents come to pick up their kid. Even though this is a victory, there's still plenty of missing children. I also haven't had a chance to reconcile Eddie's liquor store being connected to the trailer park. Cullock agreed to have officers investigate each of the Nodler properties today, excluding the new American liquor store because I need to talk to Eddie as a courtesy. The old man is sweeping the floor when I walk in. Without looking around at me, he lets out a loud sigh and puts his broom against the wall. Heard your car before you came in, he says. I also got an interesting phone call this morning. What's your connection to Nodler, Eddie? I ask. Gosh. He finally faces me. I wish it was a little more than it is. They own this building. It's also how I get most of my liquor. So, you're not directly involved with Nodler, I ask. As in, am I part of the company? No. Why are you asking me about that? What was the phone call then? Oh, my wife called about the news with you saving all those kids. Let me backtrack to what you just said, though. Nodler is your liquor supplier? They own new brand. Eddie shrugs. Jesus, I say. Then Oliver is involved. Nero? Running out the glass pane door, I book it to the teleportation terminal across the street and request to go to Chattanooga. An error message populates. Apparently, the Chattanooga terminal is down for maintenance or something. It'll take me an hour to drive up there, and if Oliver knows I'm coming... He could be in Italy by now. Since there are no cars on I-75, I floor the pedal as I'm praying that Oliver has no idea about to happen. If Eddie heard about the trailer park without even watching TV, then I'm sure everyone knows my name who didn't before. However, even if Oliver is at home and unaware, I don't see a scenario where this ends well. Every time I see his house, I don't want to believe he lives there. For a guy who gives off disposable income vibes, Oliver lives in a one-story ranch-style home. Granted, the inside is renovated with two commonalities amongst the rich. A kitchen island and a nice bathroom with a huge shower. Not a square foot of carpet in the place either. His car isn't in the garage, but I go around to the back door bust through the small window within the frame and unlock the deadbolt. While he might not be home, Oliver likely left some hint as to where he went. The leather carry-on case he keeps in his closet is gone. It may be a waste of time, but I think I need to stop by the distillery to see if he's in the office. However, I go to the phone hanging on the kitchen wall to call the Chattanooga teleportation server room. CDS, a woman answers. How may I be of assistance? Hi, I'm 
calling from the Atlanta station. And I was wondering what was going on with the terminal out there. Oh, we fixed the issue, sir. Someone decided to spill something on the computer in the terminal. Could you tell me if anyone has used it today and where they went? I'm actually not showing any activity today. It's not uncommon for us to go a few days without anyone coming or going. Thanks. Oliver had security cameras in his office, but he may have hired someone to throw water in the circuits just as a diversion. He's a car, so he could be anywhere now. Probably drove to Nashville and teleported somewhere. As long as New Brand is still making products, he still has a bankroll. It's possible he's there now preparing to leave. If anyone last saw him, I bet it was Luna. I parked the Cermany right in front of the stairwell that leads into the distillery, and Luna comes toward me as soon as I'm inside. He's not here, she says. I need to look at the security footage. It's gone, Luna says. He was in here this morning, and when I looked in his office, the monitor and hard drive were in pieces. Bullshit, I say. Come on if you don't believe me. Following Luna upstairs, I look around the ground floor, and there are barely any workers around. Maybe the afternoon shifts are slimmer. Got a high turnover rate, Luna? I ask. No, Luna says. I sent most everybody home. I can't get Oliver on the phone, and he didn't speak to me today. Hear the news from Atlanta? Yeah, Luna nods. I reckon he did too. As she stated, the camera monitor and accompanying hard drive were demolished. Otherwise, the office is pristine if no one ever came in here today. I'll probably never find Oliver, but I bet he's responsible for a whole lot more missing kids in this country. Do you know anything about his other properties? I ask. I know that he buys and sells around here, Luna says, but not often. Most of his money is invested in Georgia. How do you know all of this? Because it pays to know who you're working for, Nero. I didn't know about the kids, but I knew a lot about other stuff he had going on. If you had to bet where he went, what would you say, I ask? Gosh. Lena puts her hands on her hips. He used to go to a cabin in Georgia a lot, right near the Carolinas. He never said exactly where, though. Do you think you could get the rest of these people out of here? Yeah, Luna shrugs. I'm about to go home anyway. I hope you have a contingency plan. I stand at the doorway as everyone in the distillery gives Luna a nod and files out. None of them drive here, so they walk to the sidewalk and head home like children on a field trip. Luna should follow them, but she's waiting for me with her arms crossed as she leans against the wall. You need to go home, I say. My husband died last year, she says. I've spent more time here since then than in my own bed. Unless you want to die of smoke inhalation, I approach one of the huge vats. 
I think it'd be good if you were anywhere but here. I'm going to wait outside then. Leaning over a lake of clear, unaged alcohol, I flick my lighter and lean down to create a rushing blue flame. As the blaze starts flowing, I go to the wall of aging barrels and poke a hole in the side of one on the bottom right so I can ignite the whiskey inside. As I leave the room, the rear wall is fully engorged and heat is reaching the ceiling. Luna lingers outside as I move my car away from the stairwell and lower my window to talk. You want to come with me on a road trip, I offer. I'd rather not give Oliver the chance to kill me, she says. You can give me a ride home if you don't mind. What am I in for if I take this woman home? I have to go home and check on his other properties to see if he has one near the Carolina line. Can you drive, I ask. It's been a while, but I have a license. Here, I throw the keys. I'm going to teleport back to Atlanta. I'll come back for the car later, unless you want a job driving to Atlanta for me. How'd you pay me? 500 bucks. Shit, for 500 bucks, I'll fucking marry you. Stay classy, Luna. I'm catching my breath after running up my driveway and have to pause in the front yard. When I go to unlock the front door, I forget that I gave Luna the keys. I have to go in through the garage. Then I notice tire tracks in the grass to the left of the big metal door. Parked behind my house is Oliver's GM. The front door is unlocked, so I let it swing open and wait a moment. Looking in the crack between the door and the frame, I don't see anyone waiting for me on the other side. Poking my head inside, there's no sign of him. Oliver? I call inside. Rude asshole. Doesn't even respond, just like when we first met. I kick the door shut behind me and slide against the wall to the security screen. He's not showing up on any of the cameras, but I can lock all the windows and doors so he can't get out without breaking glass. Remember how you pretended you didn't know what I was talking about before? He's not in the living room. From this vantage point, if he's in the kitchen, he'd have to hide behind my island. Oliver is smart and probably aware that while he can't break my skin... He can always use electricity to knock me out. There are no guns in the house, which I'm beginning to realize puts me at a slight disadvantage for intruders who carry a stun gun. However, I do have a vintage hardback copy of Ulysses, which makes for a good blunt object to toss across the counter at the far end of the kitchen. Rolling on the floor, Oliver points a taser in the air and fires a line of electric string. Why didn't you just run away to Italy, I ask. Kicking the weapon from his hands, I pull a pan from the dish rack nearby and ram it into his forehead. Finally, I get a groan out of him. Patting him down, I find some mace in his back pocket, which I toss in the sink. Oh man, I say. Because of you, I've killed. Let's see. One, 
two, three, four, five people. I made it about 40 years without ever resorting to murder. I gotta say, it's not as fun as hurting someone and making them live with the pain. Dragging Oliver by the ankles, I walk backwards to the garage. He'll prosper in my cellar for a couple of days without food or water. Maybe Luna will drop by and she can watch what I do. At this point, I'd like to think I've nailed the art. I leave Oliver's car in the parking garage across the street from the downtown teleportation terminal, so I'm able to go straight home afterwards. I put a couple of chicken breasts in the oven with some broth, garlic, and butter before I try to nap on the couch. I'm dozing off as I'm eating with the Channel 5 news on, but I manage to finish and lie down on my left side in case I have indigestion. In what feels like a 10 second nap, I wake up to an alert for my security system. It's dark outside though, and I didn't have many dreams. There's no way Oliver got out from the cellar. I couldn't even get a sledgehammer through that door. Luna's waiting in my car at the gate. It's too late for me to call the bank to have money transfer her to her account, and I didn't expect her to show up so soon at night. Maybe she knew Oliver was here the whole time. She's standing outside the door looking like a kid eager for Halloween candy. I could ask her to throw over the keys and hold her hands up, but she hasn't given me any actual reason to believe she's dangerous or out to get me. I tend to be more paranoid when I only had a few hours of sleep in two days. Hey, big fella. She offers me the keys through the gate. Thank you for coming down here, I say. The good news is that you can teleport back home pretty easily. Actually, I've never been to Atlanta before, she says. I was thinking of finding a hotel. I know the bank is closed, so I'll come see you in the morning. Have you had dinner yet, I ask. Yes, sir, Luna says. I stopped at a wink place near downtown. I don't have a guest room, I say, but I can put clean sheets on my bed and I can sleep on the couch. Oh, Luna steps back. Sure, I I can at least come in for a minute. She knew I was going to look for Oliver and may not be in tonight. I am also not sure how she found my house. Maybe she just asked someone in town. It's not a big secret. Still, I put a hand on her shoulder and look at her close to spot any anxiety. Her smile is something I haven't seen before, but I glimpse at what she probably looked like 20 years ago. Got any weapons on you? I ask. You're welcome to check. Let me move my car to the garage. Let yourself inside. I'm surprised Oliver isn't screaming for someone to help him. The cellar isn't even soundproof, so Luna could hear him if she was in the kitchen. Maybe he's trying to prove a point. I'm curious how lenient she'll be in the event he does start screaming. Can I get you something to drink? I ask as I come inside. Oh, you have something other than water? Luna asks. Sure, I say. I keep a little apple soda in the fridge. 
I could make you a cup of tea. You don't have anything stronger? Since Luna passes out on the couch from half a jar of whiskey, I'll go sleep in my bed for the night. To my surprise, I don't wake up with her and Oliver standing over me. Instead, when I go check the living room, she's gone. From the security footage, I see she left early and went straight down my driveway. I was kind of expecting more. It's not that I find Luna irresistibly breathtaking, but I haven't had sex since I lost Rosa. At almost five years of abstinence, I'm about ready to lube up a tree and go to town. But I have to consider my lifestyle. I can't fool around with relationships when I'm a target. Oliver could have kidnapped my girlfriend and held her captive. I order a pizza since I can't leave the property with a man locked in my garage and after my workout routine, I put the music video station on and stare at the ceiling while my muscles heal. There was a shop that sold CDs and refurbished players, but it closed pretty quickly because no one can afford that shit. The idea of owning music or even listening to the radio is so novel. As soon as I wake up, I go to the cellar to check on Oliver. He's doubled over and staring into nothing. He'll be too weak to fight against me, and I'll have to tug on his wrist to get him over to the workbench where I've cleared a place for him to lie down. With leather straps, I secure him down and stuff his mouth with a sock. God, you've got such a pretty face, I say. Imagine what life will be like in prison looking like that. I have to do you a solid and fuck you up a little man. Otherwise, your poor asshole won't be able to hold anything in. He stares at the ceiling, and I'm a little disappointed he isn't pleading. There's no life behind his eyes, as if he's missing a soul. You could tell me where the other kids are, I say. I know there are more. Rather than trying to speak through the sock, Oliver remains silent. All right, I say. Let me help you with that face. First, I try sandpaper on his cheek. Of course, only tiny cuts for him, and dead white skin flakes off. His forehead doesn't tear as easily, though. I use the sharp end of my hammer to scrape a little, but Oliver remains mute. You're torturing me, I say. I have a blunt nail that makes his leg jerk when I rub the end against the bottom of his foot. Since this seems to be the best place to get him, I grab the hammer and aim for his little toes. But don't swing too hard. He gets the idea. Anyway... I toss the hammer at his chest. I'm getting bored. Should I kill him or cut off his face? One could lead into the other, I suppose. At this point, I should ask myself why I'm doing this at all. Do I achieve a satisfaction from torturing people regardless of their morality? Surely that makes me as bad as Oliver even if my victims aren't innocent children. However, his actions led to potentially hundreds of children suffering. If Oliver is gone, does that stop his entire operation? The whole point of this was not only to stop the kidnapping, but also the school shootings. 
Oliver. I pulled the sock from his mouth. I'm sorry. I'm going to put you back in the cellar and bring you something to eat, okay? Is there anything in particular you'd like? I can get you anything. Water would be nice, Oliver says. I'd like a shower. What about food, I ask. Anything you have works. I don't have any allergies or preferences. Okay, I nod. Grabbing the electric drill from my toolbox, I put in a stainless steel drill bit intended for cement and test the battery by pulling the trigger twice. As soon as I finish this, I say. I thought about putting this directly into his stomach, but instead go for his right thigh. Finally, Oliver screams, and his eyes show me life. So, think you could start telling me where the other kids are, I ask. They're fucking dead, asshole, Oliver says. Such language, I say. I'm not sure I believe you. Hitting the drill's trigger again, I let the ends swirl around inside as Oliver's body pulsates. I don't think I'm actually doing anything wrong here. This man was responsible for children's abductions and deaths. He doesn't deserve any sort of reform or redemption. Yet, I don't want to kill him. He's not presenting me with any danger right now, so I don't feel justified in ending his life. We killed them once they started showing signs, Oliver says. When they started changing. Okay, I say. Where are the bodies? The trailer park, Oliver says. They're buried underneath the old trailers. Give me a moment. I run to the kitchen. In a drawer with my extra spatulas and big spoons is a mini blowtorch. Sometimes I need a little finishing touch on chicken. I don't make any creme brulees. However, when the blue flame appears in Oliver's line of sight, he closes his eyes and grits his teeth. The wound in his leg cauterizes well, though. You've been so much trouble, I say. I think if you actually get arrested, there's a chance you won't be convicted. You have connections, right? The man you killed in that cabin was a DA, Oliver says. It's not that I have connections. All I did was accept their money. And I've got a lot of it. As much as parents deserve closure, I doubt the APD is going to dig up any bodies in that trailer park. There are too many implications. Putting Oliver in jail might result in him getting killed just to keep him quiet, though. I know the commissioner wants him alive after all this. How much, I ask. You want to know how much money I have? Oliver asks. Nero, if I could have bought you off, I would have tried that two years ago. Someone is going to get their hands on all of it, I say. Probably cops. Just kill me then, Oliver says. I'll cut off your balls and fuse your eyelids shut before I do that. 
I only have a little under a million, Oliver says. Half of that is from booze. You traffic children, and you're not even a millionaire? Not all of us received land in Birch's will, Nero. I suppose that kind of news gets around. He's known who I am long before we met then. Birch was always a name in New American akin to God and the Boogeyman. He was worse than what you hid under your bed. For a little moment in Atlanta, I was almost like that. And poor Rosa, Oliver says. You, being the last of the Trinity, make such little sense. You're the worst of them. What do you know about the Trinity, I ask. The Loria family used to be nothing. Before old America broke down, we'd already lost everything. What little money my family had was invested in the internet and television stock because my great, great, great ad nauseum grandfather worked for a company called Central Network. If history is correct, and then two men in the Trinity were directly responsible for destroying everything my family had. I can't say I'm broken up about it now, though. I did name one of our whiskeys after them. Nice story, I say. So you're obsessed with the Trinity. Oh, I know all about it. I even know where Birch went. He's gone, I say. He's not coming back. But he is coming back. He's just lost. Forcing Oliver's nostrils together, I shoved the handle of the hammer into his mouth. Whatever he's saying is bullshit. I'm wrong here, though. While shutting him up might feel good, I need to make an example out of him. Think about what you're about to say next. I pull the tool from his teeth. You'd be doing me a favor, Oliver says. Since I don't want to live to see what happens to this world when he comes back. I think you're delirious from not eating, I say. Releasing him from the straps, I pull Oliver off the table and walk him back to the cellar. I grab a can of soup and pour it in a small pot on the stove before noticing the blood on my hands and clothes. At what point do I become the monster instead of the hero? Oliver hurt children and traded them as if they were toys. After tossing in an empty bucket, I sit the bowl of soup on the floor next to a mason jar full of water. I sit down at the door to watch him in case he decides to break anything. You can use the bucket as your toilet, I say. Luxurious, Oliver says. Is there anything else I should know before I take you to the police station, I ask. Oh, Oliver smirks to himself. The gun. That colt you found on Frisco. The guy at the liquor store gave it to you, right? Eddie, I say. How'd you know about that? He called me after you planted it, Oliver says. Did you know he used to be a police officer? Finish your soup, I say.
When we arrive at the APD, I kick Oliver out of the car, and he's trying to push himself off the ground by the time I grab him by the underarm and hoist him up. Two officers hurry over to take him into custody, and I let them handle the bastard as they take him inside. It's true. He might be let go soon. If APD has any tact, they'll keep him in a cell until he's tried. I'll have to deliver the justice in the event he's found not guilty, but I have to let the court decide first. Commissioner Culloch comes outside waving his hands before I start to drive away. He bends down to the driver's side window and holds up his thumb. Thank you, he says. I don't know what you went through to find him, but thank you. I promise, I'm not going to let him get off of this. See you next crisis, Culloch, I say. After the years I put into this investigation, I don't want another one for a while. I know that Oliver was probably blabbering about Birch to fuck with me, but I am curious. Birch was the figurehead and essentially claimed that title by taking out Lucifer on Earth twice and he lived through three generations of the Trinity. If he's gone, could Lilith have been right about a new generation? I don't feel like I'm a suitable figurehead, so one will likely kill me. I do have a loose end in all of this. Eddie locks up the front door of the liquor store, which means he'll be leaving out the back soon. I'm leaning against the left-hand wall of the building when I look around to see if he's coming out and there's Oliver's GM and Eddie has the keys. How would he have found it and why does he have it? I didn't leave the keys inside. Got the cult on you, I ask. Eddie doesn't act surprised. He doesn't flinch. Instead, he puts the keys in his pocket and makes a motion with my mouth as if I'm licking something stuck in his cheek. Or any other weapon, I ask. This is quite a plot hole for you, Nero, Eddie says. How do you figure that, Eddie? Because no one knows how I'm involved in this. All the signs already point back to Oliver. Oliver's in jail right now, I say. He might just fill everyone in on your involvement. He did just tell me you told him about the gun I put in the evidence room. What he didn't tell you is he'll probably be shot in the head or killed in some accident this evening, Eddie says. I've already made sure of it. And I'm sure you're full of shit, I say. You might want to go check, Nero. See... If you try to abduct me, take me to your house, torture me, whatever you did to him, you're not going to be able to stop them from killing Oliver. Well, Eddie, I walk closer. What you don't know is that I don't care whether he lives or dies. He's not my responsibility anymore. But you know what I'm beginning to realize is that some people deserve to live so they can face the consequences. I don't care if you think I need to make some 
connection between you and Oliver and all this shit with the kids. I just don't. Sometimes people are in the way. Listening to you act like you're playing mind games with me doesn't give you an extra life. You've only got one. And it's over. Eddie's head hits the cement wall when I toss him against the building. Rather than beat him to death, I put him face down on the concrete and slam my foot against his spine. I stomp him until he's not breathing anymore. Now, I could pull him inside, start a fire, and let his body burn. However, I think the best example I can leave for the city is to let him stay in the open for someone to find him. Truthfully, I don't know if Eddie hurt anyone in his life. Killing someone based on implications doesn't make for a good policy. That's not why I did it. I'm tired of people thinking they're going to outsmart a brute force. If there's a warehouse full of children, a woman locked in chains in a basement, someone's grandfather getting the shit kicked out of him for missing a loan payment, I'm going to break into any window, door, or wall I need to and stop the person who inflicts misery on the innocent.